I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Wearables are everywhere. In the medical field, they are transforming lives. Haiyan Zhang, innovation director at Microsoft Research, created a wearable for a young graphic designer that developed Parkinson's. Parkinson's is a condition that inhibits movement, and this wearable allows the Parkinson's patient to write and draw again. We talked about going from a big prototype to a small wearable one. Haiyan explained the research process she did to come up with a solution and the technical aspects of how it works. We also talked about the Internet of Things, the components of these systems, and the technical challenges. Haiyan also explained her path from software engineering to design and the process of commercializing products that come from research. If you have any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear it. You can write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show or a private message. Thank you for listening. I'm here at Microsoft with Haiyan Zhang, Innovation Director at Microsoft Research. Haiyan, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Adina. You design a wearable that helps steady the hand of a graphic designer that was diagnosed with Parkinson's at the age of 29, which is quite early. Explain how Parkinson's affects the human body. I'm definitely not a medical expert, but uh, I met Emma uh, just over a year ago. I was participating in a TV show on the BBC, a documentary about sort of the power of engineering to solve real problems in the world. So I met Emma and, um, you know, she's doing so well in her career. She's a, a creative director in London, but she'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's about three years earlier. And, uh, you know, pa Parkinson's is a neurological disease. It's uh, debilitating over time. It manifests uh, in different ways in different people. There are multiple symptoms that people have to deal with day to day. They have to take a lot of medication. Um, so the main symptoms are to do with kind of motor-based function. So Emma herself, she has tremors. So she is basically constantly shaking. When she um, performs an activity, the shaking can get worse. A lot of other people have a freezing gait, which is when they're walking down the road, they suddenly can't move their legs. The legs are frozen. Some people have a slowness of movement, and then they have also smaller movements. So they find that they can't make exaggerated big physical movements. So a lot of the symptoms are, are motor-based, and of course, you know, uh, this also affects speech. They're stuttering, um, and eventually it can affect sort of, you know, internal organs as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a very challenging disease. And what is the device that you designed to help Emma with her work? look like? You know, we met and her big challenge to me is that there is one aspect of her symptoms that she wanted to overcome. Um, she is a, a graphic designer by training. Uh, she works with uh, kind of uh, computing and also with traditional sketching, drawing. She's also an artist in her own right. And she um, found that you know, because she had this tremor, she was unable to um, use a pen to write. 
and to draw. You know, she was constantly kind of shaking when she was uh, when she was trying to do these things. So she wanted to find a solution. She wanted to find a way to overcome these symptoms. So this is where I really went into this not knowing if I could solve this problem. And in fact, afterwards, the producers of uh, of the show said that they actually didn't think that I would be able to come up with a solution. Why do you think they thought that? <laughs> they thought I would fail and then that would make for a great documentary, uh, I think. Was there a particular reason that made them think that? As in, it Because was taking there isn't time? a solution. There didn't exist one and it was unclear if, you know, there, there's been decades of research into Parkinson's symptoms yeah. and no one had found anything. And what was the time frame that they gave you in the, as part of this challenge for this documentary? It took about six months. Oh, okay. So I really didn't know and I, you know, but I sort of leapt in and I said, okay, well, let's look at what we can do from an engineering perspective. So I, I tried out a number of different prototypes that were about kind of how can we make the pen more steady Uh, I was using magnets, you know, what if we have the writing surface has is magnetic and the pen has a magnet on it. So the pen is kind of slightly stuck to the to the paper and it dampens her, her vibrations, her, her tremors, other things like uh, uh, using kind of different drawing apparatuses. And then as a kind of very um, left of field, last minute prototype, I thought, well, I kind of have this idea Uh, this hunch that maybe applying vibration to her hand will help her. And this really came about because I saw some other workarounds that people with Parkinson's use, and it kind of gave me this idea of what might be the problem. Uh, so to give you an example, people who have freezing gait, so that when they're walking down the road and they suddenly stop and they can't move, sometimes they, they have a metronome, which is a, you know, it makes this ticking noise uh, for musicians. So it goes tick. Tick, tick. So yeah. they carry one of these and they turn it on, they listen to it. And this basically distracts their brain into, you know, focusing on something else and then they can, they can walk again. So I thought, well, it's interesting that there's this uh, phenomenon in Parkinson's where you might be able to kind of focus your brain on something else. Your, your brain is, you know, at least subconsciously, you know, focusing on something else. So maybe if we bring in vibrations, so instead of sound, we have this um, physical metronome Um, and we apply it to the limb that she's using that, you know, as a hunch, maybe it will work. So, you know, I tried it and, uh, you know, I, I started to kind of testing it with other people with Parkinson's and, you know, it seemed to have some positive effects. So, so I went from there. Can you describe what the device looks like? Oh, yeah. So it's a, I mean, I call it a watch. I guess it's kind of like a smartwatch, but it doesn't tell the time and it doesn't have a screen. <laughs> so uh, we used an existing strap from uh, another product and then we 3D printed uh, a watch face a case. Uh, we put the electronics in the case and on the strap and on the face of the watch, uh, we engraved Emma because the watch is called the Emma. It's made for her. So yeah, so that's what it looks like. I saw a video where you show one of the first prototypes And this looks like a big circuit board with lots of cables. What were the technical challenges of making it into a small wearable watch-looking device? Right, right. I mean, it's a, a huge hurdle to go from tinkering to making a custom PCB. So uh, here I collaborated with a colleague of mine, Nicholas Villar. He is a, an engineer, uh, an electrical engineer. And we sat down and we said, okay, well, let's take this prototype, this kind of large uh, development board, and let's make a custom PCB. 
that is also wireless and and can recharge a, a battery and let's you know get it made. So so basically, we designed a circuit board. It has um, Bluetooth connectivity. It takes a battery uh, power supply and it also recharges uh, via micro USB. And we pretty much made the board. Um, it's got a, a quite a powerful processor on it, so it can do a lot more, but we pretty ma much made it agnostic. So how you program it is that you there is an accompanying app on a Windows tablet, and Emma can program the pattern of vibration because uh, we, we sort of, we weren't sure exactly what kind of vibrations would help her. So we had this kind of very agnostic uh, UI. And you mentioned just now that the device connects to a mobile app. What can we learn from the data that is being sent from the Emma Watch to the mobile app? So this is interesting. I Since um, Emma received her watch and, um, you know, we've been working together on this, we're actually kicking off a clinical study with a neuroscience team in London. So this is where we design a protocol. So we have a number of tests and we bring in uh, people with Parkinson's with possibly similar symptoms and they run through the tests and then we'll do an analysis, a data analysis uh, on uh, statistically if they've made an improvement wearing the watch, not wearing the watch. Um, and for this, you know, we are capturing the tremor information on the wrist. So the watch is not only uh, administering the treatment, but it's also um, capturing tremor information uh, to feed back so that we can analyze that when the watch is on, does the tremor pattern actually change when the person is using it? And the duration of the vibrations, like you said, it's customizable, right, through the app? That's correct. And, you know, for the purposes of our clinical study, we've had to identify one to two different settings so that we can test against. What are other new opportunities that you have seen for devices that are improving people's disabilities and in the digital healthcare space? I think there is so much potential and opportunity for technology to play a role in improving people's lifestyles when they have chronic illness, debilitating uh, kind of uh, disabilities. At the moment, I'm uh, continuing to work on, on this and, and thinking about, so we're proposing that as we move further along in this research, can we uh, use this idea of wearables to help with other parts of the body or to start detecting symptoms and offering other kinds of interventions, not just to help with tremors, but uh, so, for example, in the last, you know, 50 years in Parkinson's research, the medication, so the chemical side of it has uh, moved very slowly. So can we have used technology to improve the efficacy of medication? So these are uh, other aspects we're looking at to improve overall lifestyle, not just some kind of singular moments in someone's day. So this is where I think, you know, this pattern, this idea can be applied to lots of other conditions. The idea of uh, capturing data, you know, biomedical signals and um, applying interventions when needed. Another area where I think the data might be useful. I don't know how the ear devices work for people that have limited hearing. They must be adjustable, right? Depending the on hearing the aids, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So more data-driven if you're in a quiet environment. Yeah, that that's great. Yeah, louder. exactly. This idea yeah. of uh, feedback and contextual function, functionality is, is so important. I think, you know, up until now, we do have existing technologies, you know, 
you can buy a hearing aid. But now we have, I think there's the potential for reactive technologies yes. as well. Yeah. Yes. People are working on software to detect depression and other issues from smartphone data. Do you find this type of work promising? I think there are a lot of signals in someone's life, in someone's day-to-day Mm-hmm. that we can capture and use to deduce certain symptoms, certain problems, perhaps. I think there's a, there's a lot of signals. Um, the question is, you know, doing this kind of research, I think we need to be very careful in that, you know, how are we picking these signals and how are we interpreting these signals? Can we be sure that um, if you're doing certain things on your smartphone, that this is an indicator of, of depression? But of course, you know, I guess even if we have false positives, if we manage to help, you know, one person out of a handful of people, then I think that's a, I think that's a plus. I think that is a win. I have a, a, an intern uh, at the moment who is working on Project Emma, and he is um, also, you know, looking at signals in relation to Parkinson's. So his PhD thesis is around capturing smartphone usage, uh, daily digital activity, to detect the progression of different symptoms. And as we've been talking about small devices that connect and send and receive data, this shows that you've worked in the Internet of Things field. How do you define Internet of Things? I mean, it's such a broad, it's such a broad term now. It's such an exciting field, you know. Uh, it's also, I guess, uh, overused and overhyped as well. I'm very excited about the potential to um, now, you know, going from the age of uh, big room-sized computers to desktops, to laptops, to mobiles, to now think about new kinds of physical devices around us that might be imbued with smartness, um, that might be connected to the cloud to be even smarter, to um, serve us in our day-to-day. So, I think the potential for this kind of technology to think about, you know, as we're looking around on the desks to see different gadgets, different objects, how can these things be imbued with smartness? That's, I think that's how I think about the Internet of Things, this potential for new kinds of smartness with the inert objects around us. And in this space, what are some of the business applications that you've seen with Internet of Things? So it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the Internet of Things is already being applied in um, industrial settings, in B2B. What is B2B? Business to business okay. uh, areas where, you know, we might not see it yet, but it's already having a huge impact on how people run their businesses. Things like, uh, you know, supply chain providers that can track goods as they are shipped across the country, can track, uh, you know, a a trucking company that can track their fleet and be able to optimize their business based on the data that is being generated, a factory that can monitor uh, the equipment that they have um, and for servicing and maintenance to reduce uh, their overhead costs, to reduce uh, breakdowns. I think already this idea of sensing the environment and then uh, talking with the cloud and doing analytics on that data is having a massive impact on business. And as we progress in the next few years, I think we're going to see more of that in our everyday lifestyles. And in addition to this business strategy, the Internet of Things is appearing in toys. Why do you think this is happening? 
So one of the aspects that I work on at uh, Microsoft Research in Cambridge is around new kinds of play scenarios, new kinds of toy technologies. I mean, I could definitely go into a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, okay. detail on this. But, you know, um, something is happening with kids and with how they grow up. They are transitioning into uh, the screen and, and digital games much earlier, you know, playing with tablets, um, playing with, you know, VR holograms and perhaps uh, coming off of toys. So, so weaning off of toys earlier and earlier. And I think there is an opportunity to uh, think about, well, you know, I think that there is value in kids playing with physical toys. But how can we imbue these physical toys with smartness so that w the kids can still be attached to their toys, but still have uh, a rich digital experience as well? And related to this toys, earlier this year I saw on the news there was this teddy bear, Internet of Things teddy bear, that the information got leaked. What are the security risks with toys? Why oh, is this gosh, very yeah. sensitive? There is a dark side to the Internet of Things. If the objects around us are collecting data and uploading this to the cloud, then we have to make sure that the data it's collecting and the people it's affecting is protected, especially for the most vulnerable members of our society, which is kids. You know, I think there are some... Uh, approaches to IoT and toys that are misguided, uh, which is uh, thinking about, well, from the perspective of a business, you know, how can we collect information, data from kids and improve our business? Mm -hmm. This is where I think we need to, as technologists, we need to really focus in on how can we provide the best value for the, for the user? How can we make the experience delightful and make you know, any data that we're capturing actually relevant to whatever it is that they want to do with their teddy bear or, you know, yeah. with their devices. And what happened with this teddy bear is you could send messages through the teddy bear to your parents or something. And what I saw was that it had to do with not very highly enforced password restriction and things like that. Is there maybe some miscommunication missing as in if you're going to set up an Internet of Things, these are the set of checkpoints you need to make sure. So, Because what I think is there were some basic things there that were missed yeah, somehow. Yeah. Mm. So do you think there's still a gap in teaching more people what this takes? This is a very naughty subject. You know, I think consumers have an appetite mm -hmm. for smart gadgets, smart door locks, smart... Um, you know, smart drop cam, smart, uh, you know, baby monitoring. There's, there's definitely an appetite and interest. There's a market there. And there's, you know, lots of companies entering into this market and perhaps not as much focus on the underlying infrastructure. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, security is a data security is a huge issue. And because very quickly, so many smaller players have entered into this market to launch products, um, there hasn't been this infrastructural layer being set up to um, uh, accommodate, to account for the security. But I think that is slowly coming in. I think there is, you know, now more uh, with these incidents, more of a focus on, on, on these issues. From a user experience perspective, um, you're right. You know, I think um, there hasn't been any guidelines or design principles around how we make IoT 
devices, sometimes that's good because then people are uh, able to innovate and think outside the box. And sometimes that's not great because people can make products that have a huge gap. A colleague was telling me he was setting up a smart energy system uh, in his house and it took him hours. It took him a few hours and by the end of it, he still hadn't been able to set it up because it was so complex, you know, connecting things to the Wi-Fi, setting up the app and, and how you access different, you know, lighting devices in your house. Um, and, and he said at the end of the day, he literally just, all he wanted to do was be able to turn on the heating. So all he did was he went into the wall and he just like took two wires and then just like tied them together. <laughs> and he was able to achieve, he was able to turn on the heating yeah. instead of using this kind of smart home uh, system. So that definitely we're going to be seeing more improvements in this area in the next Well, I, I think there'll be um, lessons learned from a user experience perspective. And I hope, you know, more designers share these experiences so that we can all improve our design. And you come from a more traditional software engineering background. What was the transition like to design and working on human experiences? I think I took a unusual route in that, you know, I was, I was a software engineer. I was working at a biomed company and uh, I just found that I, I wanted to have more influence uh, in terms of the kinds of products we were developing rather than focusing in on algorithms and system architecture. I mean, I find that really fascinating, you know, as a, a, a to solve a problem about, you know, how do you architect the system, um, you know, what pattern libraries you should use, um, you know, the coding in itself is just a really enjoyable craft. But I found that, you know, I really wanted to also influence what are the features we should be developing? Why are we implementing this particular feature? Is it really going to benefit the surgeons, the end users? Um, so that's where I started uh, transitioning into into design and innovation. And uh, I actually, I did a master's degree in interaction design, which is about uh, designing the interface between people and, and technology. So I found that that helped me to reframe my thinking from a software engineering perspective to a user perspective. And in an interview you did on Channel 9 with Rob Fraser, you mentioned that democratizing technology helped you explore other fields. How did this help you? You know, in, uh, I would say in the last 10 years, we've seen this movement. Some people call it the maker movement, which is about, you know, how do we make uh, technologies accessible to amateurs? Uh, and also this kind of belief that uh, you should be able to take apart the technologies around you and to thoroughly understand it. Um, that, you know, some people say, I don't own a thing uh, unless I can take it apart and, and really and put it back together. And so I think there are so many great projects and great people working on making the activity of creating technology easy and understandable for everyone to use. So, you know, things like making a web page, you know, it's so simple now to just make a, make a website. Whereas before, you know, when I, <laughs> I made my first website in 1993 and I was like hand coding HTML. Um, and, you know, nowadays it's like super simple. You can, you can, you know, drag and drop and you can be very expressive with technology uh, with these tools that simplify the, the process of it. And I, I really admire this entire movement. So there's, you know, with uh, the development of the Arduino board so that um, everybody can start tinkering with electronics, with uh, making their own gadgets. Uh, I just think these tools are, are great for 
kids or for, you know, anybody. Or for small communities where other companies might not think to solving their yeah, problems. Yeah, exactly, they exactly. Solve. There are so many problems in the world that might only affect a small handful of people. Exactly. Case in point being Emma and, you know, her right. particular symptom. Um, obviously, you know, sh there are other people with Parkinson's with, you know, these particular symptoms. But I think that the population is sometimes it can be quite small and not big enough for big medical companies to invest the money that's needed to, to find solutions. Or like you mentioned at the beginning, part of the prototype was 3D printed. So if those technologies were not available, it would have been much harder to get a prototype. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're working in Microsoft Research. How can work that comes from research and this makers first movement be commercialized? This is one of the challenges that I, I'm dealing with in some of the projects. Uh, that I'm working on, uh, which is, you know, how do we bridge the gap between great research and great solutions for a small handful of people to scaling up to helping, you know, maybe hundreds of people or thousands of people. I have a few different projects and they have different levels of ambition. You know, we have some projects that are trying to scale up to be maybe uh, helping hundreds of people and then other projects that are trying to go mass market. And I think for each one, I'm trying to think through what is a, a bespoke go-to-market solution. I think it's different in every case, you know, and I think we are leveraging lots of different tools like open sourcing, um, working with external partners um, in the specific industries uh, so that they had to tap into their expertise. So there's no, I don't think there is a, a silver bullet, but I think if you have a team of people who are just very passionate and dedicated to getting this out, then we will find a way through it. Last question. What are technology are you most excited about in the next 10 years? There's so many exciting new research, new technology research that's happening, things with, uh, with bio, you know, being able to manipulate DNA, organic uh, materials and how that might uh, replicate computational processes is so exciting. Uh, there's, you know, holographic and, and VR technologies. Um, I think for me, you know, to be selfish, what I would love is for, you know, for technology to adapt to my needs and to what I want to do right at that moment. Because at the moment, I have to work around my day to use technology. You know, if I'm texting, I have to, you know, take out my phone and I have to kind of use my thumbs to, to kind of text. You know, we have to bend ourselves to technology at the moment. And I hope that in the next 10 years, technology will bend to us so that in the moment that we need it, whether it's a personal assistant that we can just tell uh, what we want to do um, and they'll do it for us or something more invisible that uh, predicts what we want to do at that moment. I think this is what I'm hoping, that we as humans can just, can just live and fulfill our potential creatively um, and that technology will work with us to do that rather than having us spend our day-to-day -day trying to sort of change ourselves to make technology work for us. Or like you said earlier, a more reactive approach. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's going to take a combination of things like, you know, AI, uh, things like new kinds of display technologies. Can we go from screens to just, you know, holograms around us? Um, new kinds of sensing technologies to detect what it is we're doing. Um, so I think it will be a combination of things. Hi, Anne. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It was great talking to you today. Oh, thanks so much, Adina. I really had a lot of fun. I love this podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.